Good morning. Good morning and welcome to our Easter morning service. If you missed our sunrise service, you missed a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Uh, and we had breakfast back there too. I think there may be a couple of takeout plates that are still left. If you want to grab something uh, afterwards there, uh, be sure to do that. But I want to welcome everybody who's there with us here in person, as well as there online. Maybe you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Be sure to heart to like, to share, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, uh, click the notification bell on YouTube. That way you can get the live feed every time we go live. But just wanted to make you aware of that, as well as to welcome those who are on our phone live streaming. Uh, thank you for joining us also. If you need that number, see me, I'll give you that. Uh, here in person, or you can call our church office at the number you see on the screen. I'd encourage you, if you're at home, to go to our church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. It's under the info tab. You can download today's worship bulletin, as well as the children's worship bulletins. If you need these in person, our ushers will be glad to come around and give you one, or you can get up and get one at the back or at the windows here. Uh, the children's worship bulletins are in my, the windowsill uh, to my right uh, also, so just wanted to make you aware of that. And then don't forget also our prayer list. We have some of those on the table uh, back here across from the office as well as you can download those under the info tab on our website there. So I encourage you to take the time to do that. If you are one of our guests this morning, we want to encourage you to get one of the big bags uh, that are on the side of the stage or at the back doors as you leave. Uh, be sure to get one of those that has some gifts in it we want to give to you as well as some information about our church to just say welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you have children uh, who want to grab one of these smaller ones, uh, they can take it and give it to their friends. If they weren't here uh, for our Easter egg hunt a couple of weeks ago, uh, they can get one of those for themselves also. Uh, but one encourage you to use these to invite uh, other children to our vacation Bible school that's going to be coming up uh, in June and so it's got some information about that in it also so just wanted to make you aware of those things be sure to get those things before you leave today glad to have you with us uh, this morning and we are going to worship this morning beginning with number 533 he lives he lives he lives so let's stand as we sing our hymn together this morning
seated. Amen. Amen. I uh, hope you get a blessing from the service uh, this morning. want to bring your attention to your bulletins there to our Missionaries of the Week, Cody and Kristen Chester, who are serving in Florida. Uh, you may think, why do we need missionaries in Florida? Florida is one of those growing states uh, that has a lot of people moving into it, and there's a lot of churches that need to be started in those uh, high population areas especially. And so uh, be in prayer for them, but we also want to share with you this brief video of some of our other missionaries who are serving in the opposite part of North America up in Alaska. Uh, so prayerfully watch this video, if you will. Alaska is cold. Alaska has dark winters. And never in a million years did I think that I would be in a church planting role. But we arrived in Alaska early 2019 to take the helm at True North. We think about the strain it puts on planters to move their family here, to endure the darkness, to live in the cold. In the same way that it's hard for people to move here, to live here, it's really challenging for churches to thrive here. I got a taste of that the first time that I met Russ Mabry. Russ was the last and youngest deacon at Muldoon Road Baptist Church at 82 years old. The last few years, we've had uh, declining population. We did not have the funds to bring a, a, a pastor up in lieu of a call uh, or to move him and his family up here. The only viable option that I saw was, uh, was, was the potential of merger. He explained to me that Muldoon Road, though it had been thriving in its history, the baton was never passed. And Muldoon Road and True North were different really in every way. But we decided to become one church, and to begin to pass that baton and really bring up the next generation of faithful believers. We are a healthier, more mature, but also more agile, lively, and ready to go church than either of those previous churches could have been on their own. God's always brought young men to us. I sort of think it's the rugged wilderness of Alaska. We need to find pockets of darkness in our city and in our state where there is no gospel light, train those young men, get behind them with resources, and then send them to do the work of the church. Without the generous giving of Southern Baptists, church plants can't survive. We need the faithful partnership of Southern Baptists in the lower 48 states. I never want to undersell that this is a hard place. But this is what passing the baton looks like. It looks like an older generation being willing to trust that the next generation of the church will carry the light of the gospel to the people who need it. Just heard the audio there. Uh, there's an issue in the system up there. It had nothing to do with you, Tommy, uh, there with that. So uh, do continue to pray for our missionaries, though, there in Alaska, as many of those people struggle uh, to continue the church work there, as well as in places in Florida and places all across this nation and North America in between. So let's go to the Lord in prayer for our missionaries of the week. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for uh, people uh, like these that we've seen and heard of this morning who are serving in Florida and Alaska and in all the places in between across North America. We just pray, Heavenly Father, that you will have your blessings upon them as they are gathering all of our missionaries to worship you this morning around this nation and around the world. We pray, Lord, for your blessings upon their services. We pray, God, for you to be glorified and honored in everything that they do. And we just ask, Lord, for uh, your name to be uplifted. Father, just keep them safe, protect them. And Lord, we pray that you'll continue to lay upon our hearts what, what we might give towards the Annie Armstrong Easter offering to support those missionaries and to keep them on the field. So we just ask your blessings upon them in a special way this morning. Have your hand upon us as we worship you through song and through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We want to encourage you this morning. Our choir is going to be singing uh, their Easter cantata, Blessed uh, Redeemer. And there are a few songs in there that are just some congregational type songs. The words won't be on the screen, uh, but you probably will know some of those. I stand amazed in the presence, uh, at the cross and down at the cross, some of those old familiar songs. Uh, and then also we'll be singing Wherever He Leads I'll Go. So if you want to look those up in your hymn book to see those real quickly, uh, you'll hear it as we're singing or you can just sing along uh, with us. I'll turn around to try to uh, bring you in at those times also. But you be in prayer for our choir as they sing this morning, Blessed Redeemer.
The psalmist wrote, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, O God, because you have redeemed me. Redeemed? What does that mean? To redeem something is to buy it, to own it, a release from one owner to another. What does the psalm mean? How can God redeem you or me? That's the story we've come to tell today. It began over 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem.
wounded, bleeding, dying for me? Is that what redemption is? Was Jesus' blood somehow used as payment? Yes, it became our ransom. In ancient times before Christ, God required the shedding of animal blood to be used as payment for our sins. Blood as payment? Yes, because blood means life. So the shedding of blood means sacrifice. Jesus' death on the cross took the place of the ancient ritual of animal sacrifice for the sins of the people. His blood paid our debt once and for all. It's hard to understand how Jesus' life has paid my ransom. Yes, but the cross was essential to our redemption. Jesus to the place called Golgotha, also called Calvary. There they crucified him. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him. The chief priests with the scribes were mocking him. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. But Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing.
it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. The curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. He breathed his last. The blood redeems us, but it also sets us free. Free from what? Sin? That's right. As soon as we're born, our sin begins to hold us captive. We become slaves to it. Slaves? Yes, it owns us. But remember, Jesus paid our ransom, redeemed us, and bought us out of slavery. No longer do we have to serve that sin 
or be bound by it.
then on the third day after Jesus died on the cross, he even redeemed us from death by rising from the dead. So we will no longer die? We will no longer die eternally. These bodies are only temporary, but our spirits live forever, and we can live in heaven even after our bodies wear out. Galatians 4, 5 through 7 says, God sent his son to redeem those under the law 
so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And as his children, we love him, and we want more than anything to obey him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me.
I feel like those guys do in the football games when they go over to the sideline, give me some oxygen, coach, give me some oxygen. <laughs> Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Acts chapter 13 and verse 29 through 39. I want to share with you briefly a message this morning that the Lord has laid on my heart entitled, Why Jesus? It has to do with the resurrection. It has to do with the greatest day of celebration for us as believers, but it's a day that we not only celebrate at this time of Easter, it is also a day that we celebrate every Sunday and every day of our lives as believers. And so the question for us this morning is, why Jesus? Acts chapter 13, we're going to begin with verse 29. And we're just going to go down through verse 31. So would you stand as we read God's word in honor of his word. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for the blessing of this word and for the day of this celebration. Father, I pray that every person who is here, every person who is watching online, will hear this truth that Jesus loves them more than anybody else could ever love them. He loved them so much that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for their sin, to live that perfect sinless life in their behalf, to be the sacrifice for their sin and then to be resurrected from the grave on the third day. Father, I pray that you'll use it to speak to the hearts of those who may not know Christ, that they would come to salvation. And Lord, use it to those to speak to us who are believers. Lord, that we would be faithful to share this message with those in our lives and that we would live its truths in our lives, lest we be hypocritical, saying one thing and doing another. So bless us this morning, Lord, and may your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we look at this day and we think about Jesus had died on the cross, uh, but regardless of how you die, lots of people have died. He claimed to have died for the sins of the world, but anybody could make that claim. Obviously, if he did die for the sins of the world, his death was unlike any other death. In fact, the clincher is the belief that he rose from the dead. And as those three things are true, then he lived an unequaled life, he died a unique death, and he experienced an unmatched resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only what makes Christ different from every other person who ever lived and superior to every other person who's ever lived and sets him apart from every other person who's ever lived. Every other person who has ever lived and died physically is still dead, except Jesus. Think about every other religion that there is. Every other religious leader has died and is still dead, but not Jesus. In this passage, we're going to be seeing and hearing, as you already have seen here, from a man who wrote over half of the New Testament, who at one time hated even the very name of Jesus, who made it his life's work to stamp out Christianity and stop it dead in its tracks. But because he claimed to the day he died to have met Jesus, the risen Jesus, 
he became the champion of answering the question, why Jesus? So keep in mind as we listen to this man named Paul and what he has to say as he talks about Jesus, he's speaking both to Jews and to Gentiles in a place called Antioch. Antioch's the place where we were first called Christians. Four times he talks about Christ being raised from the dead and he tells us why he believed it and why we should too. First of all, because we have an empty tomb. You know, as we talked about this morning at our sunrise service, something happened 2,000 years ago that was so dramatic, so transformational, that at first it changed 11 men's lives so drastically that every one of them died a violent martyr's death except one. He was exiled on an island, on a long Greek island, to die there. Something gave birth to the writing of the four Gospels. It ignited the movement that went in concentric circles, if you, were, if you will, from a place called Jerusalem and expanded as it covered the entire world many times over. We know what we're talking about there, talking about this man by the name of Paul, who, keep in mind, hated even the very name of Jesus. He despised the movement called Christianity. He had devoted his life to destroying the Christian church. And that's what makes this statement more amazing when he says in verse 29 and verse 30, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But, don't you love that word, but? It comes at the greatest times in the scriptures. When you think all hope is lost, as the disciples did, but... God raised him from the dead. Paul's referring here to the empty tomb. You know, there's one thing that's absolutely certain. If the tomb where Jesus was buried had not been empty, we wouldn't be celebrating today. We wouldn't be celebrating his death. We wouldn't be celebrating his birth. I'd be doing something else uh, right now. You'd be somewhere else than you are right now. The thing that would have stopped Christianity from ever getting off the ground, that would have caused it to crash and to burn, is a tomb that wasn't empty. Let me give you a reverse illustration. Think about this. If somebody's on trial for murder and they maintain their innocence that they never killed anybody and no dead body has ever been produced, and if during the trial the person that the man is accused of killing walks into the courtroom, at that exact moment the trial's over. The case is dismissed. There's no possibility that that man can be guilty of murdering someone who's still alive. To be sure the empty tomb alone doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but for 11 men who all denied Jesus just three days early, earlier, who were hiding out for fear that they too would be killed uh, just like Jesus uh, and because of Jesus. Suddenly, they begin to preach and they begin to proclaim to anybody that would listen that Jesus had been raised from the dead while he was still in the tomb. That would have been foolish. That would have been stupid of them. In other words, if like every other grave and every other tomb, the body was still there, then to talk about a resurrection was preposterous. But if the tomb is empty, then the resurrection is at least possible. And when you examine it, it's not just plausible, but it's the best explanation for why the tomb is empty. Any serious student 
of whatever happened 2,000 years ago does not deny two things. They don't deny that Jesus died, and they don't deny that Jesus was buried. So if the tomb was empty, there's only one of two possibilities. He was either raised from the dead or somebody took the body. There's only two possibilities of who could have taken the body. It was either his friends or his enemies. And upon just a brief examination, you'll begin to realize that his enemies wouldn't have taken it and his friends couldn't have taken it. I mean, think about it. To make sure that nobody took the body, you remember that the Pharisees persuaded the Roman authorities to put a specialized Roman guard in front of the tomb to make sure that nobody would steal it. If the Pharisees, the Jews, took the body, then all they had to do was produce it. They didn't need to go through the trouble of having the disciples arrested and imprisoned and flogged and eventually killed, which they did. All they had to do to bring Christianity to its fatal end was just produce the body. And there can only be one reason why they didn't produce the body. They didn't have the body. If they had, they would have. As far as his friends, there are all kinds of reasons to prove that they couldn't have done it, even if they had wanted to. But the one thing that is telling is this. Every one of these men were willing to die, and many of them did die, because they believed in the risen Lord. People will die for convictions. They won't die for concoctions. They may die for what they believe is the truth, but they won't die for what they know is a lie unless it's simply to protect a loved one or a friend. And oh, by the way, the other thing, none of the disciples believed that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. I mean, think about it. Why weren't the disciples camped out at the tomb on Sunday morning? Why weren't they waiting for Jesus to come out? He had said it over and over. Why didn't they wait for him to come out? Because they didn't expect him to come out. They were hiding in an upper room thinking that all hope is lost. All their dreams have been crashed. Neither Jude nor Greek nor Roman thought a bodily resurrection of an individual was even possible. And now the Jews believed at the end of time that righteous people would be resurrected altogether. But nobody believed that God would raise a person from the dead right in the middle of history. People were reconciled to the fact that he was gone. He was never going to be seen again on this earth. But the empty tomb changes everything. William Wand, who was a former professor at Oxford University, put it best when he said this. He said, all the strictly historical evidence that we have in favor of the empty tomb and those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so, do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. Secondly, I want you to see that we read the eyewitness testimonies. So not only do we have an empty tomb, but we also have the eyewitness testimonies. There are two bookends to the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. There's the empty tomb, but there's also the eyewitness testimony. So Paul says in verse 31, he says, but for, And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now, any attorney will tell you that by far and away the most powerful evidence that you can present in any case is a credible, legitimate eyewitness testimony, and particularly when you have many of them who corroborate each other's stories. 
So then again, an empty tomb alone can be interpreted in any number of ways. If you combine the empty tomb, though, with the eyewitness testimony, that's what moves even skeptics to have to take a serious look at exactly what happened. No one disputes the fact that significant numbers of men and women claim to be eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus, which, attested to, which is attested to by practically every one of the 27 books of the New Testament. Two Gospels, Matthew and John, were written by men who claim to have seen the risen Lord and died for that belief and that conviction. Incidentally, it's not the four Gospels that explain the resurrection. It's the resurrection that explains the four Gospels. In fact, it is the resurrection that explains the entire New Testament. So let me put it into perspective. If you, only, if you took away the birth of Jesus Christ, it would only affect two books in the New Testament that even refer to his birth, Matthew and Luke. If you take away the resurrection of Jesus, though, you basically take away the entire New Testament. James wrote the entire, wrote the book of James. Uh, he was the brother of Jesus. He didn't even believe in Jesus as the son of God when Jesus was alive. In fact, none of his brothers bought into it. John said this about Jesus' brothers in John chapter 7 and verse 5. He said, for not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, think about that. They lived with Jesus for 30 years before he ever started his ministry, and they didn't believe in him. Not one of his brothers is mentioned as a disciple before he died. In fact, they, they even thought he was crazy. In his ministry, he would say incredible things about himself, claiming unbelievable things about himself. And Mark says this in Mark 3 and verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Yet 40 days after his crucifixion, there were 120 people in an upper room praising Jesus. Listen to who's in that room in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What a transformation that happened in their lives. The Apostle Paul had a unique experience with the risen Jesus. Every other witness to the resurrection saw Jesus immediately after he came back to the, from the grave, before he ascended into the heaven. Paul's the only one who met Jesus long after he had left this earth. Furthermore, while at least everyone loved Jesus, respected Jesus, revered Jesus, and wanted Jesus to come back from the dead, the apostle Paul hated Jesus. He was hostile to Jesus. He didn't even want to consider the possibility of a resurrection. And yet he goes on to write half of the New Testament that's built on the foundation of the eyewitnesses here who saw the risen Jesus. All of these eyewitness testimonies accomplished something that had never been tried before of any other religious leader who'd ever lived. No other religious or philosophical leader of any of the world's religions or philosophies has ever proclaimed to have a risen Savior. None of them. Every other religion speaks of a leader who was alive but is now dead, but not the New Testament. The New Testament and these eyewitnesses uh, who, who not only wrote these words, but sealed them with their own blood, proclaims a Christ who was dead but now is alive. 
Except for Christianity, every religious, political, or philosophical belief is either based on someone's personality or someone's philosophy, and every single one of them are dead. You can take all the major religions of the world and look at any one of them and you'll see that. Christianity is the only belief that's not based just on someone's teachings and someone's personality, but it's based on the historical fact of a resurrection by an empty tomb and eyewitness testimony. The final thing I want to share with you this morning is that we experience an eternal transformation. So Paul concludes with these words. Go down to verse 37 through verse 39. Verse 37 says, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, th that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the resurrection of Jesus is unique in two ways. First of all, as we know, other people in the Bible were raised from the dead. You think about Lazarus. Everyone else who was raised from the dead, what did they do? They all died again. And their body turned to ashes like all bodies do. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was given a new kind of body, a perfect body, no longer subject to decay and to disease and death. And so as Paul said, the resurrection gives us two things that nothing else and no one else can give us. There are two things we need more than anything else. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from guilt. As a child, one of the first things that we're taught by your parents is to say the words, I'm sorry. We figure out early, we figure out early on that something is wrong with us. Why do I do the things I shouldn't do? Why don't I do the things I should do? And that problem is called sin. And if your conscience is healthy, even as a child, when you do things wrong, you feel bad about it. You feel guilty over it. And you know you need to be forgiven. But then you learn an even greater lesson. You're, you can be told that you're forgiven. You can be assured that you're forgiven. But many times we still feel guilty. You realize that you don't just need to be forgiven of your sin, but you need to be freed from your guilt. So often we carry that guilt even around with us. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just a theological doctrine that Christians believe. It's extremely relevant to your life because you'll never find forgiveness of your sins. And you'll never be truly free from guilt until you meet the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said that through Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. And through him, we are set free from the guilt of every sin. We have the eternal transformation that takes place in the life of every person who comes to Jesus. Now hopefully what you've seen this morning is how all we've been saying about Jesus ties together. Why Jesus? Because he lived a sinless life. None of us have. He died an atoning death. And to prove that he did live a perfect life, he did die an atoning death, he came back from the dead. 
Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but the empty tomb is proof that God accepted the payment for our sins. He canceled our sin debt. He set us free from the guilt of all of our sin. The gospel writers say that the angels rolled the stone away. Jesus didn't need the angels to do that. He could have done that himself. The reason why the angel rolled the stone away wasn't to let Jesus out, but to let us in so we could see for ourselves Jesus is alive. And he alone can give you the forgiveness of your sins and the freedom from your guilt because he is the only risen Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we celebrate the greatest thing that ever happened in all of our lives as Christians. That you didn't just send Jesus to live a perfect sinless life and that was it, period. You didn't just send him to live that sinless life and then to die on a cross and that was all, it was over. He lived a good life, he did good moral things. No, it was more than that. He lived that sinless life that we couldn't live to be the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life, that when he came out of that grave alive, he was showing us he had victory over death, over hell, over the grave, that our sins could be forgiven and we could be freed from all of our guilt. Lord, I pray this morning that there are those who have realized that this morning. Maybe there are unbelievers who are here this morning, people who've never trusted by faith in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. I pray today, God, they would just call out to you and say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I believe Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and arose on the third day. Jesus, come into my heart and save me and help me to live for you all the days of my life. Father, I pray this morning that there'll be those who'll come, maybe even online, who'll, who'll acknowledge that decision that they've made in their hearts. And Father, I pray that you'll help them to follow through with Believer's Baptism. Lord, there are many of us as believers who, for whatever reason, the fire that we once had, the passion we once had uh, about the, the transformation that happened in our lives, that once we were dead in our sin, but now we're alive in Christ. Father, somewhere along the way, some of us, that fire's grown dim. Father, I pray that you would fan the flames once again. Lord, that you would give us a passion because of what Christ has done for us, that we couldn't help but tell others, Jesus is alive and he can save your soul. He can free you for, forgive you for your sins and free you from your guilt. Lord, have your way in this invitation. May you be glorified and honored. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing our hymn of invitation number 318, the nail-scarred hymn.
just a moment, Brother Steve, if you'll come and share our announcements. Good morning. Brother Stan Smith has a short announcement for us. Happy Easter morning. If you look at what's happening at Highland, this Friday night, the men's Bible study group that meets on Sunday night, led by Rick Miller, will have a cookout slash campout at Riverbend Campground in Normandy, Tennessee. Come out and join us if you're available. We'll probably eat around 6.30. And then that Saturday morning, April 15th, we will have our annual quarterly men's breakfast. So come out for a time of food, fellowship, and some men, men strengthening. Thank you. There are three prayer concerns that I'm aware of. Uh, Bertie Davis is at Brookdale. Uh, Randy Tatum is Ken Tatum's brother. And Mike Stringfield's father. I need to remember those three folks in our prayers. Anything else before we dismiss? No service tonight. We've got you a couple extra minutes this morning, so we're going to take the night off. Join me in a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day and the honor and privilege of being here at this time. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate and glorify your name and open your word and learn and just draw nearer to you every time. Lord, we ask your blessing now on the rest of this day that uh, everything we do, even as we leave here, that you would be at the center of that. We ask your forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.